And welcome to the uh, back chat part of uh, this morning's uh, output uh, with me, Jim Gould, and uh, co-host uh, Anna Fenton. And, um, yeah, as... As you know, as listeners, regular listeners will know, the the, uh, the first half of what was back chat from nine eight thirty until nine o'clock is now entirely taken up with uh, COVID nineteen news in our new program, uh, COVID Update. Um, we continue with um, back chat uh, after nine o'clock, and uh, of course different topics but a lot of them are inevitably going to be covid uh, related since um, that is the main um, issue that uh, all of us are grappling with at the moment um in this part of the program we're going to be talking about um food supplies and food prices um just before we introduce uh, our next guests um a couple of uh, emails here from uh, listeners um uh, Philip says, uh, it seems that some common sense is finally being adopted so that uh, vaccinated people will have some privileges. The whole point of having a vaccine passport is to allow those who are vaccinated to return to some normality and hopefully uh, encourage the elderly and non-believers to get vaccinated. Let's hope now that on 24th of February we can return to gyms and other outdoor activities such as... Uh, uh, such as soccer, tennis and golf. If not, what is the point of getting vaccinated if it brings no advantages? And uh, Magnus writes... Um she has written on this subject before. Magnus says, uh, so finally, after more than two years, Hong Kong has joined the rest of the world in recognising that COVID does actually transmit in private settings. Slow hand clap for Carrie and her team of geniuses. Amazing job. A bit of a heavy irony there from uh, uh, Magnus. But uh, yeah, that's a reference to one of the new restrictions, which will be that from tomorrow... Um, uh, no gatherings of more than two households in private premises. OK, um, for this part of the show, as mentioned, we're going to be talking about uh, food security, um, food prices, and that is as well, particularly vegetable prices have continued to um, skyrocket because of transport disruptions at the uh, border crossing caused by COVID infections among truck drivers. Um, and the Consumer Council has warned that we might have to uh, suffer in the next few months with further inflation on uh, different types of daily goods. We're now joined uh, on the line by Daisy Tam, Associate Professor uh, at the Hong Kong Baptist University and who is an expert on uh, food security and also Celia Shan, Deputy Director of the Society for Community Organisation. Um, Daisy Tam, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, so can you run us through exactly um, you know, what happens with the logistics and the supply chain to cause uh, the kind of shortages that um, we're seeing now in some parts of the territory? Hong Kong is very heavily dependent on imports uh, when it comes to food. We import over 95% of the food that we eat. We have been seeing these fluctuations in prices for quite some time now, specifically in the past two years because of the pandemic. What we are seeing now is um, very particular to what uh, we depend on, on land crossing, land border crossing, such as vegetables. Um, and as you say, this is because of the cross-border truck truckers that have um, been held up at the border. Now, 92% of the vegetables uh, we eat um, come from China. So it is a huge source of, of our fresh greens. 
And when this happens, then, yeah, obviously supply drops and then therefore the prices go up. Um, but I think it's reflective of a more general vulnerability of our food system, which is that uh, we are super dependent on imports. So basically our lifeline. <laughs> but this isn't new, Daisy, is it? No, it's the same Daisy. <laughs> This isn't new, this situation, oh, that we're right. super dependent on imported food supply. So, uh, you know, w w where does any kind of checks and balances come into this? Because yesterday in Moiwo, a small stick of broccoli was $24. That's three times normal. So is, is there any kind of ceiling on this? Um, unfortunately not, because, uh, like everything else, Hong Kong's um, food market and food supplies, it's pretty much free market so you know market prices are not regulated it's not protected so i imagine we will see again um a hundred dollar packs of choice arm or something like that um and this is recalling two years ago at the beginning of the pandemic when panic buying cleared the shelves of supermarkets and wet markets now um yes <laughs> as you say this isn't anything new we have seen it before um and 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 Precisely because we haven't really done very much about securing our our food supply, and I think this is really a moment. Um, if there were to be a silver lining in all this pandemic, I think this would be a really good time to put it on our agenda. You know, Singapore has does it has has done it. Um, China, in fact, has been actively pursuing food security for many decades, and they have stepped it up in the last uh, five-year plan. So what does Singapore do? Because that's a close correlation to our situation, isn't it? Very much so. So Singapore has proactively put food security on their national uh, agenda, and they have set a target of 30% uh, by 2030. Now, um, even if, you know, even if... Um, we might not think about China as a close relative, but I think it's worth also looking towards what they're doing because, you know, they have the foresight of having this vegetable park basket project um, launched back in the 80s to require each region to maintain a self-sustaining food supply percentage, right? So Beijing right now targets to achieve 20% by 2025, and Shanghai is already at 40% self-sufficiency. So... Why I'm putting Singapore and then Beijing and, and, and even Shanghai um, together is because that Singapore is, is small and, um, and therefore relies on this uh, a bit of self-sufficiency to keep it going. But even China, within its regions, within its major cities, they are installing these kind of um, strategies because we know that transportation, especially the last mile, is extremely important. So it's not about geographical distance, it's about accessing that food and how do we um, uh, manage that risk is really what we need to think about. So are you saying we should be farming all over the new territories instead of collecting containers? Yes. <laughs> yes, I think that is in parallel to diversifying. And, and this is not, um, I don't think this is against uh, any sort of development policy. I just think that you know, with urban development and as we grow in population and as we urbanize more, we need to shift away from this heavy dependency on importing food from 
agricultural countries where you know food is mass produced um we i mean we can't deny that you know we will never be self-sufficient and that's not so much the point the point is how do we have different um ways in which we could access our food supply Okay, um, we're also joined by Lai Shan, Deputy Director of the Society for Community Organisations, or SOCO for short. Uh, good morning to you. Good morning. So, um, your organisation um, uh, obviously is concerned about uh, low-income families. Yeah. Um, how, to, to what extent have they been affected by what we're seeing now with this um, uh, steep rise in food prices, especially vegetable prices? Yeah, actually, before they they already complain about uh, the the price of the food is uh, increasing, and and they cannot afford to buy the meat. Mm. And but now even the vegetable is uh, so high, so actually they they they, they have no choice just uh, just eat the rice or noodle uh, 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 with soy uh, sauce, uh, and then uh, stop to buy any vegetable and meat. And uh, lucky, I think. The government now they said that the food uh, delivery will be uh, become normal we hope will be better because um, because of the COVID-19 um, uh, some of the driver the diagnosis of the COVID-19 uh, yeah sure we obviously we hope it's a temporary so I think the government yeah. they should arrange the smooth otherwise those uh, underprivileged they really cannot afford for for normal uh, meal and even actually now many of them they already uh, um, hard to afford free meals and not I mentioned those expensive uh, 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 vegetables or meat. If it's difficult for people to have uh, three meals a day and if they're surviving on rice and yeah, noodles yeah, with yeah, uh, soy yeah. sauce, I mean, I mean that's, that's, not good for, that's not good for health, is it? What, of course. What, 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 what is many that? Of have you, have you noticed? Those yeah. Many of them, they are malnutrition mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and so so it's very hard for them to to survive. Is that so, co- is that is that causing serious health issues? That degree I, I of malnutrition. So. Absolutely, it's a health issue. But I mean, uh, are, are people having to be hospitalised, or I mean, and what, what's it doing to them in terms of their you know their daily lives? I think the the government they need to release the subsidy for them immediately, and otherwise they they cannot survive. And many of them they already so we also deliver some supermarket voucher, those uh, uh, um, uh, cash is even cash assistance or food uh, voucher or some rice uh, give to them to help them. Um, they they def- that's that's very need need the government's help. Uh, yeah. What sort of assistance um, can they receive uh, at the moment uh, from the government? And the government, if they are non-CSA, that means yeah. they are they not depend on CSA and they yeah. are low income. They can every six months apply for eight weeks um, food from the uh, food bank from the government. That's the all. But you know, now many of them, they are unemployed, underemployed. So even they have for them to pay for the rent and not mention the, the food. So many of them, they they uh, apply for not only those food bank, they cannot um, afford to, to help them always. So they need to apply to in church, in NGO, to see anyone can donate to more food to them.
And what's the effect on people's um, you know, psychological state, uh, you know, with uh, anxiety, for instance? Definitely. They're anxiety. They, they, they don't know how, what can they do. They are, they, they, some of them, they're even depressed. Um, mm. They feel they're helpless and they're hopeless. Mm. I think it's too long, long time for the uh, restriction of COVID-19. And many of them are forced to stop their job uh, and then the family income <clears throat> become more because of the inflation or even the children, they stay home. <clears throat> they need to spend more on electricity, on online, and, and, and on the, all the things, that, the expenses. But the income decreased. Or even some of them, their income is zero, and then use up their... Uh, uh, use up their, their, their saving, and then they some of them, they even they need to... Uh, uh, borrow from their uh, relatives or even their relatives they are unemployed now also and then some of the um, 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 known from the uh, known communities something like that yeah is it your observation that the government understands the the desperate plight of these people i i don't think they really uh, feel really deeply about those the, 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 the sorrow of these people and of course, um, luckily, that um, yesterday they finally announced they will have uh, ten thousand assistance for those unemployed. But we hope they they can uh, give more uh, uh, easier for these people to apply because so many of them they are doing casual work, uh, they are underemployed, or they don't have any record how to show them they are unemployed, or even if they are underemployed, we you have to because some of them maybe one family only have. 3,000 income, and do they qualify for that? And some of them, they said they maybe they need to have an NPF account, but some of them actually they are casual worker and they do, their employer are not, not willing to uh, have NPF for them, and then so will they uh, uh, be qualified for that? So I think that the government should relax their criteria and, and, and help them to apply. To, and then for those needed, they can really can get help. Um, Daisy Tam, would you have any advice for, for low-income people who are finding it uh, uh, difficult to you know, have a, a balanced diet because of the, the cost of food at the moment? Yeah, I mean... Sorry, Daisy Tam, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's very, it is very difficult, and I absolutely hear uh, what uh, Sogo is describing right, right now because I am also observing um, in my food rescue work that the, the dire situation of these uh, low-income families, mm -hmm. underemployed families, what the assistance can do, and it is urgent, is to answer to the immediate needs. But in the long term, I think there has to be access, and the access to food is not just um, stuff to fill their Stomachs, right? So it's also healthy, green um, uh, vegetables with a bit of protein and a balanced diet. So I think for now, in the short term, we need to assist these families in, in helping them with accessing these types of food. Um, education would be also always necessary and important. So how could we, with limited budget, come up with healthy, balanced meals, especially for kids? Um, but in the long run, how can we allow them access? And I think this is something that even just <laughs> having urban farms 
in low-income areas could be a, a solution. Many places in the world have done that, as not just as a means of, of producing food, but as a way of also improving the quality of life and ensuring that health is not something that is only for the rich or those who can afford it. So is the solution to give people allotments like they do in the UK, you know, a small piece of land which is yours to grow food on? Or is there a different way to do this that works? Allotment works, urban farms work, rooftop gardening works. You know, we have a lot of public spaces that could be better utilized. And this has to do with the way we plan our cities. Do we plan for food production? Um, obviously not at the moment. Um, but when we think about it, it really is necessary. And to have a decentralized and diversified, even little plot of land, um, whereby we could have our own food growing is really not something of the past, but something that we can imagine in the future. So tomatoes in your window box? Uh, yes, to tomatoes. <laughs> tomatoes or any fresh greens, you know. Yes, it is not something that is entirely... Um, um, it's not going to be, as, as I mentioned, for an individual household level as well as a city level, it's not going to be the most, um, it's not going to be self-sufficient, right? That's not the point. But having, having some access and ensuring that as part of a, a well-balanced and quality life, I think it's, it's you know, when, when the Chinese said food and it's really the sky, it's the heaven, it's the, the basis of everything, um, we, we need to be a bit more creative about how we deal with it. If you have a small balcony, uh, I mean, okay, uh, low-income families probably would not have uh, any balcony, but but, but um, if um, you know, if you have a balcony in your apartment, I mean, is it uh, is it you know feasible for, for you know for most people to grow sort of well, tomatoes or or anything else uh, for for your own supply? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. If you have a if you have a balcony, yes. Definitely. Um, but I, I don't want to just put this as some sort of like middle class uh, type of pursuit, you know. I think that's precisely what I'm saying in these public housing and low income um, residential areas. Um, public spaces, could that also be transformed into something that is productive? Um, you know, it, it, in Korea, you know, public parks, uh, people can grow their own food there, you know. so. It's not about just finding more land or, 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 or redeveloping the whole project. It's about utilizing what we have already, um, space that is underutilized, projects that are underutilized, and can we sort of increase the capacity? OK, uh, we've got an email here from Vic, says, uh, why can't the government use cross-border trains to get food supplies into Hong Kong? Besides carrying capacity, they are more energy efficient. Why are we dependent on cross-border truckers? Is this a case of another cartel dictating policies? Um, uh, Daisy Tam, um, are you able to um, shed any light on that? Do you know anything about that, about the, uh, you know, the logistics of food supplies? Uh, as you say, um, the vast majority of, of our supplies come from the mainland. So, so um, Or barges yeah. come to that. Um, you could use yeah. the water. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't... I, I mean, I... I uh, with the cartel situation, I'm... Un I'm unable to, to, to comment directly, yeah. but what I can say is that, you know, we do depend on 
um, land for most of the vegetables and fruit uh, from China. So we import 23% of the food we eat from China. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we import also 10% from U.S. and Brazil, and these are 9%. So really, these are the top three importing countries that Hong Kong depend on. And yes, land, water, and air freight, they are all affecting us on, on various levels. Um, just about a month ago, when, when, when um, cargo flights and freights were stopped because, again, of the pandemic, you know, you know these kind of importing um, fruit and dairy and meat products are all suffering. And one could argue that this is maybe a little bit less, um, maybe more luxurious or something um, that is not the basic necessity, whereas vegetable is much more important uh, to maintain a healthy meat uh, diet. Um, but they are all affecting us um, in, in various ways. And um, yes, uh, people have mentioned the train because, you know, it's more energy efficient and there's no it's self-driving, I think. And I believe that could be a possibility. But again, that is still requiring a cross-border. Uh, there is a bottleneck there, mm. right? So the bottleneck is, is, is go- always going to be a risk, how we manage that risk is what we need to include when we think about our food security strategy. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much for speaking to us on uh, Back Chat this morning. That was uh, Daisy Tam, who's an associate professor at Hong Kong Baptist University and a specialist on food security. And also, thanks very much to Lai Shan, Deputy Director of the Society for Community Organisation. Thanks very much to you both. Um, just before we have a look at the uh, Olympics... Um, Uh, Let me just read uh, this um, comment on our Facebook page. Uh, George says, uh, the government needs to ensure our private data from the vaccine passport is only used for anti-epidemic purposes and a promise that the tracking of citizens will end once everyone is vaccinated. It must not be used as a form of mass surveillance. Um, Also, um, a message here from uh, John says, uh, 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 dear Backchat, new format Backchat, in the new format, you have uh, not picked up any comments from your Facebook page, not one. If that is the new policy, at least have the decency to make the announcement uh, that you only accept calls or emails. Thanks. Um, uh, and John says, oh, in the new format, uh, hopeless. Um, sorry you don't like it. Uh, uh, on the uh, Facebook issue, um, I didn't read George's, um, just, <laughs> just to make a point, um, but uh, it must be said we do give priority uh, to emails because uh, Facebook messages, uh, they're there, they're published, they can be read by anyone, um, whereas uh, uh, emails are sort of uh, directly to us, uh, the hosts. But um, I'll look into that. Um, I'll look into that, uh, John, and see what we can do um, and see if we can read some more relevant um, Facebook messages. Anyway, um, now it's time for this. And we're joined by our sports reporter, Atom Chung, for the latest on the Beijing Olympics. Uh, Atom, good morning to you. Good morning, Jim. So, uh, a great result for uh, Gu Ailing. Yeah, that was really the highlight uh, yesterday. She became the youngest uh, Winter Olympics gold medal winner for China uh, at the age of 18. She was very confident the way she uh, pulled off that very special move to win the the um, free ski uh, big air event. She did a four and a half rotation and she was uh, also very articulate afterwards, I felt, when she was talking to reporters. She kept saying how thankful she was 
that she has been throughout the process uh, representing China, but also having uh, trained in, in U.S., being born in the U.S., and just uh, saying how she hopes that uh, the sport, the uh, Big Air uh, Women's Free Ski event, is actually making its debut at the Olympics, and she wants more people to know about it. And uh, the interesting thing is that she's still got two more events left. She'll be competing in the halfpipe and the slope style as well. Mm. Okay, and it was uh, quite a big day for Nathan Chen as well. That's right, yeah, a record-breaking day. He scored the most points ever uh, by a man in a figure skating short program, and now he is ranked number one going into tomorrow's free skate, well ahead of the defending champion Yuzuru Hanyu of Japan, who uh, stumbled in his short program, and uh, he is ranked eighth. So it's going to be very hard for him to defend his title. He's also got two uh, fellow Japanese skaters ranked ahead of him, Yuma Kagiyama, and also Shoma, uh, Uno Shoma, who won the silver at the last Olympics. And uh, a big matchup between Canada and the U.S. in the in the women's hockey. That's that's right, yeah, and it worked out very well for Canada. They were four two winners, so uh, they completed the group stage with uh, having won all their group games actually. So Canada go into the quarterfinals as the top seeded team. Uh, they will play Sweden on Friday, which is a a bit of a tricky tie. Sweden got the eighth seed after Japan and the Czech Republic finish ahead of them. The Czechs will play the U.S. Mm. And a big one today, uh, Hong Kong. Uh, Audrey King is in action, isn't she? That's yeah. that's right. So this is Hong Kong's first action at the Games. And uh, she's 19, competing in her first Olympics. Uh, she'll be competing in the women's slalom. Uh, this is an event where she uh, she took part in, in the uh, Youth Winter Olympics in 2020. And uh, on that occasion, she was the second best Asian competitor. So it'll be interesting to see how she does uh, on the world stage. Mm. And what else have we got uh, coming up today? Well, also the, uh, the men's hockey gets underway today. Uh, the ROC will uh, defend their title uh, with the first game against uh, Switzerland. And then uh, that's followed by the Czech Republic against Denmark. I also want to mention that uh, the ROC features two former NHLers, Nikita Gusev and Slava Voinov. The likes of Canada, US and China will play tomorrow. Mm. ROC being the Russian Olympic Committee. That's right, the Russian team, yes. Right, Uh, yeah, the Russian team, which actually have to play under the banner of their uh, Olympic Committee, don't they? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. And uh, they did win the hockey uh, Mm -hmm. four years ago in Pyeongchang. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, uh, a great day to look forward to at the Winter Olympics. Thanks very much, uh, Adam Jung. Um, thank you to you, Anna, and uh, thanks very much to our listeners and to everybody who wrote in. Um, a quick look uh, at the weather um, before we go to the news summary and morning brew. Uh, it's going to be mainly cloudy, sunny intervals during the day, though, with a, a top temperature around uh, 18 degrees, uh, moderate to fresh east to northeasterly winds. Uh, the outlook, sunny intervals,